that was Hard Times by Gillian Welch. I chose Hard Times by Gillian Welch because we're maybe all or we're about to experience hard times with uh, living in a time of coronavirus. But hard times, of course, can also lead to new connections and new experiences. So tonight we're looking at food security in Alice Springs, Central Australia and beyond. We're going to look at um, self-quarantine as an opportunity to actually explore food in a different way. And if we have enough time, we're going to look at some of the bigger issues around uh, where we're at at the moment, particularly um, from a foods perspective. So um, I'd like to welcome Libby Kartsoff all the way from Bellingen in northern New South Wales. Uh, welcome, Libby. Anyhow. Thanks, Rita. <laughs> Yeah, and I just want to say why well, I've got Libby's really you're passionate about food, and I know you're passionate about food security and Alice Springs. Even though you live in Ballingen, you have lived um, in Alice Springs for was it ten years or more? Eleven years. Oh, there you go. Um, is Ballingen is it hilly? Would you say the green hills of Ballingen, or is it sort of like plains? I was trying to remember because it's not oh, the hills are in like Dorigo, aren't they? But Ballingen's in a valley. It it's um a Stunning place. Uh, it's bucolic and verdant. It's a, a valley uh, dotted with dairy cows and garlic farms, and seventy uh, percent of the shire is uh, under forest. And uh, it's surrounded by uh, the Dorigo World Heritage uh, Gondwanan Rainforest. So wow. It's, it's as far away as Alice Springs as you could get in lots of ways, isn't it? Like it's green where oh, it's dry. That's right. Yeah. Extremes are fabulous. <laughs> and uh, both Alice Springs and Bellingen are, are those things. But what they do have in common is they both have, a, apart from a Steiner school, they, they do have um, a, a quite a large alternative community as well. So That's right. Yeah. So you've been shopping today. I've been shopping in Alice Springs. I've got to say there's still not a lot of pasta, old tomato puree. There's very little powder or UHT milk, but there seems to be plenty of bread and fruit and veg, um, although cheap cuts of meat are going, seem to be going pretty quickly in the supermarkets. Uh, Afghan traders seems pretty well stocked, although I see they've run out of five kilo bags of wheat on account of me actually buying one. What about Ballingen and nearby Coffs Harbour, Libby? What are the uh, are the supermarket shelves empty of toilet paper and pasta and rice? They are, uh, but if you have a different kind of relationship with food, there's actually plenty of it. You know, uh, there's plenty of uh, fruit and veg. Um, and today I went to the Whole Foods uh, shop in Coffs Harbour, which is our regional centre, and I was able to buy everything. There's, there's nothing in short supply. Uh, mm. It's uh, super packaged stuff in the mainstream supermarkets that seems to be in short supply. You know, I um, asked at Afghan Traders, I said, what are you selling a lot of? And they said, look, lots of beans, um, lots of, um, you know, um, lots of health food products to increase your immunity. And I also saw that Nielsen, is it Nielsen Data, had um, there's some data out there about uh, the US grocery stores and they've seen a, uh, a 63% increase in the sale of dried beans, rice by 58%, chickpeas and black beans by 40%, 47% and tuna by 31%. It's really interesting because I think we've become so focused on convenience and as that convenience has diminished with 
people hoarding, uh, I think this is a good thing that people are starting to think, well, what's a purer form of, of that food? Mm. What, what are the critical things that I need to have in my pantry? And I think that's a good thing that people are starting to think that way. Yeah, it's like it can go, well, it's not just flour I need, but maybe I need wheat, you know. Um, it's not just all these sort of sauces I need, but what do you make sauces from? Like it, it took a while for all the passata to go, but all the passata is pretty much gone. Um, but I was really interested in that idea that, look, that there is a lot of bread and fruit and veg, but there's nothing dried. There's not much in the way of dry food anymore. So people aren't buying a lot to eat now, are they? It's that idea you're buying all the foods that you can hoard away for when we're um, unable to go out, I suppose. That, that's the logic I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually uh, was surprised. I went into um, one of the big supermarkets the other day, and I just I only wanted one thing, but I did a a lap down the aisles, and I was really surprised to see that things like um, crisps had yeah. had been that the, the shelves had been completely empty. Uh, along with the rice and the pasta and the mm. toilet paper, but it just surprised me that people would hoard such super packaged food. Yeah, yeah, because it's bulky. Like, we're going to run out of, you know, space sooner or later. I've got my little tucker box. It's full at the moment. It's often full, but, um, yeah, I don't have a uh, <laughs> I don't have a cellar. Do you have a cellar? No, no. <laughs> it's an aspiration to have a cellar. Yeah, I think you've got to live in the US to have a cellar. But look, we're being told over and over again that there is no um, shortage of food. And, you know, I've got a – I spoke to someone in uh, one government department, I think, um, and I can't say who it is, but he said, look, he affirmed as well that actually there there is no shortage of food. And, in fact, um, communities at the moment are stocking up and community stores, like in terms of remote community stores, all have between six to eight weeks of supplies. And Alice Springs at the moment has at least two weeks of supply. Mm. And he maintains the problem isn't supply. He maintains the problem is getting food up back onto the shelves. Now, I'm not sure if everybody agrees with that, um, that that in fact it's staff shortages that stops those shelves from being restocked because I've been into Coles day in, day out and there hasn't been much change in quite a lot of the shelves here. Do you think it's disturbing because we have that national idea, you know, the, the national anthem of this being a land of plenty and then suddenly that's kind of being turned on its head. Although the rhetoric out there is that we have lots and lots and lots of food, um, sometimes the reality isn't that in the supermarket. I think um, I, I read a, a couple of well, weeks ago when the hoarding first started, it's hard to believe it, it was <laughs> such a short amount of time ago that it started but um that one of the issues is the the trucks are limited about when they can deliver food you know where supermarkets um might abut uh residential areas there there have been restrictions and i i I read that they that the hours in which food can be delivered to supermarkets has actually been changed so that they can do the 24-hour delivery and I saw today that a lot of supermarkets are now going to stay open 24 hours a day to try and reduce the amount of people flooding in at opening time. Mm, yeah. Just I, to thin yeah. the crowd a bit more. 
Yeah, I feel people for people at Bush who are, you know, who are coming in to do Bush orders. I mean, we used to do, you know, spend over $1,000 and it would last us for six weeks. And I, I do feel for those people who come in and they've got this one opportunity to do a big shop and then there's nothing in the supermarket. So it's good to hear that those shelves are, are being stocked up. Yeah, well, I agree with you. You know, I think people are still feeling really nervous about food availability and so they're still pouncing on whatever comes in. Yeah. So if you could just have, say, five, maybe six ingredients that you could just have and you, mm. or someone said you've just got to get down to like five, maybe six ingredients, what would those six ingredients be for you to have in your pantry that you – you know, that you feel would, you know, be enough to provide nourishment for you and your family for maybe an extended period of time? Oil, uh, flour, uh, rice, beans. Two more. more. Okay. Uh, I have to put onions in anything savoury, onions or garlic. Uh Uh-huh. And I kind of move between Asian foods and um, Mediterranean food. So maybe maybe it would be coconut milk. Oh, really? Why, why would you no, like... <laughs> I, no, I'll say uh, a really good curry paste, oh. which I might have made myself. Oh, okay. See, that's interesting because it, you're sort of like wavering between flavour and um, nourishment in your choices, apart from olive oil. I know. Well. Yep. I mean, it's quite similar to mine. I had flour, so which you did as well. I had olive oil. Um, I had decided garlic over onions. I've, I would also have tomato puree. I would have to have some parmesan, and I figured a um, a big bag of bolotti beans, or some type of bean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? Uh, would you would uh, you swap your rice for beans? Do you think? Uh, well, beans are certainly more nutritious. Yes, mm. I could do that. But I, I don't know whether I'd do bolotti. I might do um, a white bean. Yeah, I'm not sure about that bolotti is actually the right choice either. I did think about like lima or cannellini. Possibly uh, a lima bean is really nice, but it can fall apart so easily. I did um, have a look in what the, the nutrient value is of the different beans. Mm-hmm. And pinto seems to be one of the... Yeah. it's funny. I was just about to say I think I could easily swap a bolotti for a pinto and sometimes I have interchanged them and no one's noticed. So I'd be happy to replace my bolottis with pintos and maybe we could then share the pintos. But a white bean does, uh, I mean, they are very versatile. You know, you can have them in a minestrone but you can also make a really nice dip out of them. Yeah, and there's that really lovely Italian pasta dish, and we'll get onto recipes later on. You know, the the pasta with the little white cannellini beans, and that's really yummy and easy. Yeah, that, the white beans just being a little bit more versatile. Yeah, I think I love bolotti's because I grew up with eating bolotti's, and for me, they're one of those foods that remind me of a child. But I must say that my family doesn't share my love of bolotti's; they would much prefer another bean. So yeah, maybe I need mm. to give that up. You know, I'm actually quite looking forward to a time when I can spend a, a, a lot more time in the kitchen. And, yeah, it just it's just that idea of, you know, we don't have many times in our life where we can spend, you know, days and days just cooking and thinking about food. 
you know, on holidays maybe. But, you know, here in Alice Springs you tend to sort of go interstate and so it's, um, yeah, I am almost looking forward to being in quarantine um, and having a bit more time to, to cook. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I spent this morning um, making a rich uh, tomato sauce because we have an oversupply of tomatoes at the moment. So uh, that was pretty nice and maybe I wouldn't have done that so uh, readily if I was dashing off to work. In fact, I know I wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, I'm just finding I'm cooking a lot more sourdough and rye bread. I'm doing a lot more soaking of beans. Um, it's like I'm sort of like getting ready for something. Um, but tonight we are going to talk about beans. We're going to talk about dried beans, not the green beans. And we're not going to talk about the tin beans. And I'll look, it's not because I'm a snob, but I really think they are substandard. They've got a substandard flavour and texture and... Sure, look, at, you know, at a pinch I might use the odd tin of beans but generally the thing I love about beans is that you actually have to soak them. You have to think about cooking them at least eight hours ahead of time um, and I, I don't have any issue with that because I, I love that idea of getting up or not, it's the reality. I don't know if you do this, Libby, but I'm, I'm often thinking about dinner when I wake up in the morning. What about you? Uh, absolutely <laughs> because um, I think our day starts often um, with going to let the chooks out and appraising what's in the garden and and what we should use for dinner. So that whole thought process mm. does start at the beginning of the day. Which gives you more than yes. enough time to soak your beans. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't always soak beans. No, it's true. There is the quick soak. Do you use the quick soak method? Yeah. I, I think it depends on what recipe I'm using so if I first made a particular dish and and it said just soak the beans I might just keep doing that but mm. it also depends if it's a big bean I might soak it yeah I'm yeah. pretty inconsistent where well, what about your small you beans you just need to cook longer uh, yeah, but also that that soaking, you know, gets rid of certain sugars, which uh, you know, which which cause indigestion. So that's basically why we're soaking beans to stop them from, mm. you know, giving us you know unpleasant digestive um, effects. Um, but do you, I I might not soak a little bean, like maybe a black bean or even a little mung bean. I don't soak all my beans, but it's true that the larger beans do require some soaking. I rarely do the quick soak method just because I find, you know, the right way of doing it, I think it's to get it up, you know, you get it, bring it to boiling point for, is it three minutes? And then you'd put the yeah. lid on it and you've got to then get yeah. it down to room temperature. And I invariably always forget and it cooks too much and so my beans become kind of half cooked and it's not what I want if I'm cooking with beans. I want my beans to be soaked and have that particular sort of, you know, when they've almost been reconstituted um, and they haven't yet been cooked. I want them to be at that yeah. point when I start to cook with them. I think also, you know, the wonderful thing about dried beans that aren't canned is, oh, the texture. Mm, you know? Absolutely. There is a really difference in texture between canned beans and dried beans. Totally. One of the things that's good to remember when you're cooking beans is not to add the salt too early because that makes them mushy. And it actually hardens the skin. I actually don't add the salt till I'm ready to serve it. Um, but there are quite a lot of bean types. Just what, just, what are your, what, let, let's try and name them all. So there's adzuki, 
um, black-eyed peas, which are a bean, bolotis, which we've talked about, broad beans, chickpeas, kidney beans, lima beans, cannellini. Have we forgotten anything? Uh, peas, blue peas. Yeah, I love those blue peas. What about pintos, mung beans? Um, yes. Black beans. Pie lentils. I think uh, pie lentils are still kind of bean. Uh, haricot. Oh, yeah. Um, um, have we said broad? Now, chickpeas are actually a legume. Well, They're, I, um, I think there's all these terms like pulse and legume and I think it's it's a little bit confusing. I, like I see everything, you know, it's a seed, isn't it? They're, they're all one, some type of a seed. Because I Austra- think they're collectively called pulses, aren't they? Well, no, pulses apparently is an Australian term and it actually only refers to five bean types. So it refers to chickpea, fava, field pea, lentil, lentil, lupin and mung bean. I think that's six actually, not five. And I didn't know this at all. Um, so that's when someone talks about pulses. But I think there's a lot of um, general uses of these terms and I actually found it hard to get a definitive answer on what is a uh, legume, what is a pulse, what is a bean, you know, what is a, um, a dried pea. So I'm just going to say beans and when I say dried beans, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking chickpeas, I'm thinking dried peas, I'm thinking red lentils, all those things that um, are bean-like. Um, that are all fabulously good for it. <laughs> they are. So tell me what you found out about the – you found out that in terms of pinto beans had some of the highest nutritional content. Okay, so beans have got in them a lot of protein. They've got a little bit of fat. They've got a lot of carb. Um, but they've also got fibre, um, iron and some other minerals. But of course, um, like traditionally, there's this idea of beans coupling beans with rice because when beans and rice go together, you have a full protein, and there are quite a lot of recipes um, which call for beans and rice together. Do you like beans and rice together, Libby? Oh, love it! Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I love lentils and rice. Yep. That's a, uh, a a very popular dish in our house because dal is different every time you cook it. Mm. It but, is, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get but, that. But um, we also have um, beans and cornbread. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good one. I mean, we're, we're pretty much vegetarians, so that combination of beans and grains is, is, is fabulous for yeah. us because it has it apparently about the same nutritional value as meat Yeah, when you combine them. Do you have a really favourite bean recipe that we're going to talk about soon? Oh, I do. I love um, Stephanie Alexander's baked bean recipe. Oh, okay. Which is... No, let's not go through it because I've got a little song. I've just got a little song I just want to play and then we're going to play this little song and then when we come back from the song, we're going to go through the recipe. Have a listen. All right. And that was Paul Kelly with these scared little weird guys singing uh, baked beans. <laughs> Who would have thought Paul Kelly's got a song about baked beans? So, well, it's so good. <laughs> do you do it directly from Stephanie or do you have some adaptation there? Uh, well, the more we've made it, the less we pay attention to her recipe. Mm-hmm. Which is often what um, happens with um, really good recipes. That's right. And like the dal, it's slightly different every time. But 
you know, uh, there, there's uh, a basic process we um, adhere to, which is frying up uh, onions and garlic and chopped up carrots and uh, capsicum and um, pureed tomatoes. And um, then we throw in the beans and do all that on the uh, stove. Oh, bay leaf and uh, thyme, which we uh, enjoy just going and getting out of the garden. And, um, and once it's all combined, we throw it in the oven. And there's something about cooking baked beans in the oven in a big old cast iron mm. pot that makes it taste a million times better. There is. I think beans love being cooked slowly in the oven. I, I completely agree. And I did some the other day. Um, I'm going to talk about my bolotti bean recipe and I did them in a slow cooker and they weren't anywhere near as good as when I've done them in the oven in yeah, like a cast iron pot that completely holds in all that flavour. Um, yeah. How, how long I you, don't know what the yeah. difference is. I don't know. There's something to do with, I think, just the depth of the steel and the way it holds heat. Um, how long do you cook yeah. it for, Libby? Uh, about four hours. Okay. And, and we would have soaked the beans yep. overnight. And we've, we've actually made it with bolotti. We've made it with um, uh, navy beans, all, all, um, which, of course, uh, we call baked beans. Yeah, yeah. Do you know I mean, where the navy bean term came from? I did, I did research it recently and I've completely forgotten, so please tell me. Uh, from the Second World War, that was when they were started being cultivated in Australia, and it was to feed American troops oh, up in, up in uh, Queensland. Yeah, up in Queensland, Northern And Territory. Kingaroy was the baked bean capital. So yes, I quite a, like a it. cheap yeah. source of protein yeah, for uh, American troops. There you go, the navy bean. And I agree with mm. you. I would interchange navy bloody. Pinto, yeah. But um, I'm often surprised that baked beans are actually um, navy beans. I often go, that's a funny thing, isn't it? And I don't think the baked beans that we buy are actually baked. What do you reckon? Like like a standard tin of baked beans? I doubt it. I think they're cooked in a big pressure cooker somewhere and not in an oven. No way. (laughs) I've got my favourite recipe for baked beans, which I've been doing for many years. I have no idea where it came from. One of my sisters cooked it um, when she was quite young and I just copied it. So it's not dissimilar to your baked bean recipe, but it's got a few differences. So you've you've soaked about a cup of bolotti beans, and these this one has to be bolotti's. I wouldn't do this with other beans. Um, and then you've got your slow, not your slow cooker, but your cast iron pot because you need a cast iron or a big stone pot. And then down the bottom you just put olive oil, um, and then about six sort of rashes of prosciutto, just like roughly torn up. Um, and so you've got about four cloves of garlic, and um, then you put your cup of bolotti beans on top of that, and you put quite about you know, at least a teaspoon of grated nutmeg and bay leaves um, and just enough water to cover it um, and then you're going to put the lid on that and again cook it for like four to five hours. This one you really have to leave to get to room temperature because just that um, that flavour of the, the prosciutto and the garlic and the nutmeg uh, makes something, something magic happens there. Um, now I just, oh, that'd be yeah, fabulous. Yeah, I just serve that with parmesan and maybe some fresh bread. I made it the other day. It was fantastic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so well, it, see, look, uh, I mean, baked beans typically has um, bacon in it, but we don't eat bacon, yep. so we omit that. And sometimes if we want 
a bit of that bacony, smoky flavour, we might put some smoked paprika in instead. It just mm. gives that bit of a hint. That's a great idea. And, of course, the critical ingredient for baked beans is um, a bit of maple syrup as well. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a little – that's a secret tip there. Just at the end, yeah. I was in um, Greece maybe two years ago now and I had the best beans I've ever I've ever eaten um, and I was staying at this sort of like organic um, Airbnb and um, Eleni, who was the wife of George, who owned the property, would cook for us every night. She did some amazing, really simple things with um, lima beans and chickpeas and she just seemed to always like soak them and cook them, but she cooked them in her wood-fired oven. And they were so simple and they were just beautiful. Um, I've asked her for the recipe, so she's still going to get back to me. And so if you um, keep an eye on my Kitchen Radio Facebook page, I'm sure Aleni will pass on those recipes for beans. Um, Because you do come across beans in a lot of um, Greek cooking. I was sitting there thinking, which cuisines um, cook a lot with beans? But obviously South American, because of course the bean comes from South America. And Middle Eastern and and Greek cooking, you do come across beans quite a lot. But weirdly, when when I was looking at the history of beans, Mm -hmm. um, I think the the first some of the first beans were found in Thailand. Um, Yeah, yeah, nine thousand years ago. Oh wow! So I don't really know what what type of beans they would have been. But, you know, they come from all over the world, really. They do. My research said they came from South America and I've always been under that impression that beans came from South America, like as part of that new world food with potatoes and tomatoes and everything else, really yummy. Do you ever think about, like, with the new world, you know, like there were so so many of the foods that we love were from the, the new world, were from South America? I, I often will put beans in salad, so I'll often cook up beans and if I've got some left over, I'll freeze them or I might use them in a salad the next day. I've got this lovely recipe from the community cookbook, which is um, black bean, corn and pumpkin salad and that's really lovely. So you're just combining um, your cooked little black beans and then the corn, you've grilled your corn cobs um, on a barbecue and then you've just kind of like sliced off the tops of them um, and then you've roasted about, you know, two centimetre squares of pumpkin. I've done it with sweet potato. It's just as good. And then you've got lots of coriander in that. And then... I think I might have had that salad somewhere. It's really lovely. And then it's got pepitas in it. Um, and then the dressing is really nice. The dressing's got cumin and coriander toasted and um, olive oil and garlic. And it's a really, really yummy salad. And it's a whole yeah. meal almost. Yeah. yeah. I, I sometimes do a, a, a lot of roasted vegetables and including eggplant and and toss, you know, small spinach leaves uh, through it and then and also chickpeas mm-hmm. and use similar spices, maybe tahini and yogurt dressing with some olive oil in it, squeeze of lemon juice and put that, over the whole thing and that's a, that's a whole meal and the colours look fabulous yeah. if you had some red capsicum through it as well, the reds and greens and blacks. Actually, my favourite falafel recipe has beans in it. It's actually half, um, it's like a cup of broad beans and a cup of chickpeas. Do you want to hear it? Mm. 
I've got to say, it's the best. It's the best falafel, I have to say. So you actually have to start two days ahead of time. You've got to soak your not not your full board beans, but your bigger brown board beans. You've got to soak them for mm. two days, and then you take off the skins. You've got to soak your chickpeas for a day, um, and then you pull it all together in a in a blender or a um, food processor. You can't do this without a food processor. And into that, I put um, garlic and cumin, toasted cumin, a, a teaspoon of bicarb, um, lemon juice. And then I just pull together whatever greens I can get hold of. So if I've got a bunch of coriander, if I've got a lot of parsley, if I've got celery leaves and if I've got spring onions, they all go in there um, with lemon juice and salt. And I actually I sort of pound that for quite a long time until it's really nice. Um, and smooth and then what I do is that I get each little ball and I put it on kitchen paper on a breadboard so that just takes out any excess liquid Um, and then from there I deep fry them and I never have touch wood Um, I know a lot of people find falafel difficult to make but mine hold together completely and it is actually gluten-free because it doesn't use um, burgle. You know, a lot of falafel uses um, cracked wheat, whereas this recipe doesn't. Yeah. And it still holds together really well. I suppose if your oil's hot, it would. Yeah. Yeah. And I just actually, I, I deep fry them in a really small wok. And I find that's a really good shape um, because things tend not to stick. And even if they stick, they're really easy to unstick. But mm. prior to this recipe, I, I think I really struggled with falafel. It would just fall apart and it's just, you know, it can be a nightmare. But this they recipe are so good. Yeah, I know. I know. Years ago when I was cook, I was teaching actually in Melbourne um, and one of my students said, do you want some falafel? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking she'd come with little sort of cooked falafel, but she gave me this big pack of frozen falafel mix and I kept it in the freezer for ages and then one day I took it out and I cooked the whole thing and I've I was a little bit sick afterwards but um, it was fantastic. The other thing about beans is they are considered to be a famine food which is sort of one of the reasons we chose it tonight because you know beans are very popular at the moment um, because everyone's hoarding Um, but because they can keep for a really really long time and they have high nutritional content they are considered uh, a famine food. Um, Also they're really inexpensive and generally readily available. Which brings us back to our pandemic, which, you know, it's it's an interesting time we're in, isn't it, Libby? There seems to be, like, obviously the focus on um, everybody self-isolating, um, but then a lot of people are starting to do some cooking. I mean, what do you do at home when you're stuck at home for a really long time? Well, um, cooking, for me, seems the most obvious thing to do. As well as, obviously, to possibly rekindle your relationship with your vegetable patch. Um, I haven't done that yet, but certainly um, I have been thinking a lot about cooking. Oh, look, I I think it's a a fabulous opportunity. I mean, I've spoken with so many people who, I mean, obviously we're in serious times and, you know, I think for, for most of us, we've never encountered anything like this in our lives. But the good thing is, that people have become really centred on home, really mm. centred on um, a, their relationship with their family and their relationship with place. And so, you know, the people I speak with over the phone have said, I'm really actually enjoying being home <laughs> and cooking and being in the garden. And 
I, I think there's something r deeply satisfying about knowing the origins of your food mm. and um, creating something uh, nutritious and delicious. So, yeah, it's a, it, I, I think that there are some good things that are coming. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's certainly time to sort of revisit that the slow food movement, um, which is all about sort of having that sort of deeper connection with food, and um, it's it's the antithesis of fast food. Really, it's about taking your time with food, and not being you know if something takes two days to say that's okay. Um, what do you think about this idea, like this idea that maybe we've push too far i mean that you know there's a lot of sort of talk about coronavirus being the result of um we're, we're pushing into the deepest darkest parts of africa and there's also this 5g fear and on-demand air travel and the fact that we you know can get raspberries all year round like have we kind of got to that point in our existence where we've become so indulgent that that there's some kind of backlash against this yeah um, i yeah Definitely, I think. Um, sorry, we've just got a, a really big downpour happening here, and I'm oh. finding it really hard to hear. Can you put hear. the micro? I'd love to just hear the sound of rain. Like we did. Oh, yeah, I can hear that. It's amazing. It's lovely. We we were actually uh, our community was on the verge of having to um, hire a, a desalination. Um, plant to draw water out of the tidal part of the river because uh, we don't have a reservoir and uh, we were on maximum water restrictions. We didn't have uh, a next step other than go to uh, an emergency state, uh, state uh, which was the desalination plant. So when it started raining uh, about six weeks ago Everybody was very, very happy. <laughs> and I suppose it's not like here when it rains. Like when it rains here, it's like for one or two days. I can imagine when it rains there, it's going to go on for quite a lot longer than that. It does. It does. Um, we've had uh, two minor floods since it started raining. And, it, it yeah, mm. the, the drought has broken, which is great because we were in the path of um, one of those big bushfires that was raging. We we were completely surrounded by fire, and um, you know parts of our community had to evacuate in the in the path of the fire. But we were saved. It started raining just in time. Did that feel like? Yeah. End, did that feel like end times? Yes. Um, I feel like. We've um, had the horsemen lining up, you know, the um, pestilence and... War, famine and death. Well, it felt like we had certainly uh, some pretty extreme conditions lining up. We had drought and then we had fire and, and we've had flood and now yeah. we've got... Um, pestilence. Coronavirus, of course. And... It really does seem like we're, we're being told really clearly that we're not treading respectfully um, and, and these are the consequences. 
I, I think even even the biggest skeptics are, are, you know, paying attention to what's happening now. Who could ignore it? You know, there's. Uh, I, I mean, if you come back to things like food security, we've uh, tipped the balance, and I, I think that's where all this insecurity and the food hoarding comes from. You know, there's there's an anxiety that our environment is faltering in its ability to um, provide us with the resources we need and that we've contributed significantly to, to that situation. Um, and that's sort of the... I, I agree with you. I think it's just pushed pushed way too, too far and too hard. Yeah. And have become yeah, very disconnected, become, you know, from what it means to be, oh, to be a human and a sentient being. And, you know, food is an important part of that. Um, and we've be, if we've become very disconnected with how we um, collect our food and whether it's hunting or gathering or, or, or growing, um, then this really is an opportunity to, to reflect on that. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about in um, more traditional cultures where a, a massive amount of time was invested in acquiring um food we don't do that and I, I, I often think that uh, consumerism is uh, displacement for that really deep-seated um, sense of, of gathering and because we don't do that when you think about the, the, the way we, we might have more traditionally um, consumed nutrients. They would have been very small quantities, highly packed with, mm. um, you know, particular nutritional content. Um, and we we fill ourselves for other reasons now, I believe. And I've I've been uh, reading a bit lately. Um, well, over the last couple of years, about this notion of deep adaptation. It's basically a conversation that started with an academic from uh, a university in the UK. And his name's Jem Bendel, and he talks. He 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 um, took sabbatical and reviewed uh, with re other researchers some. Um, uh, a lot of information around clim the climate emergency and uh, ended up writing a, a paper about concluding that societal breakdown is inevitable in the near term. And that's pretty confronting stuff. And you might say, well, what has that got to do with food security? But, you know, the, the relationship between food security and climate is pretty obvious. Mm. Uh, but he, he proposed that um, to respond to this very confronting possibility or likelihood, as he puts it, uh, that we need to consider the four R's, which are um, resilience. What are the things that we should uh, keep doing? What, what, to, what, aspects of um, how we live do we want to retain and then the second R is 
uh, relinquishment? What are the things that, or the way that that we're living? What are what are the elements of that that we need to give up? So the first one um, was what, what, are, what, what? So the first one's resilience. Is that right? Resilience, yes. Um, the the second the second is uh, relinquishment, and I think this is a really hard thing for people to do. What what are we going to stop doing? Yeah, we can uh, give up the raspberries from Chile. You know, we can we can we can give things up for the greater right. for the greater and, good. And yes, um, something. Well, I mean, I suppose the question is, what what are you prepared to give up, and what do we need to give up, really? It's not just about want, is it? Ah, There's going to be some yes. things that we just do. We're going to need to give up in order to keep. This That's right. Relinquishment is about the things that we don't choose to give up, but the things we must mm. surrender. And then the um, third is uh, restoration. What are the things we need to rebuild? You know, uh, that that we've destroyed. What do we need to restore? You know. Uh, biodiversity and and the um, amazing botanical opportunities that that reside in biodiversity, and um, the the fourth one is reconciliation, and that's um, that's about reconciling what our role is um, in in the bigger scheme of things, and and. Um, you know, I, I guess collectively these these things. He he talks about deep adaptation, and adaptation is is um, what all species have, um, all, all successful species have done. They've had the ability to, to adapt. Uh, adapt and 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 prevail. And um, you know, I think right now, um, coronavirus is has has told us that you can't just going deep into the forest or or you know and and destroy it or uh, consume things that you're not meant to consume mm. um, and and it's still open to speculation about uh, whether it was bats or some other wildlife but certainly um, but th- there is that idea that those uh, bushmeat markets are in some way culpable for for at least the absolutely. You know, endemics yeah pandemics and viruses mm. yeah so with with that idea of deep adaptation, I mean, it's it's a fairly grim um, uh, idea, but the good thing is whether you subscribe to it or not, um, it has generated some really interesting uh, responses from other academics and people who are, are really interested in this idea of uh, using the world's resources more effectively and more sustainably and paying respect to where we, where we are. And, uh, I mean, one of the unique things about Australia, we have the oldest living culture, which has seen a bit of uh, climate change mm. uh, and prevailed quite effectively and has a, a, an amazing knowledge of a diversity of foods. That are, and, and has a, an amazing history of adaptation. That's right. That's right. You know that that wisdom is is right there for us to consider. Yeah. So, if listeners are interested, that's that's a book or is it a, a concept? Deep adaptation. It's a it's a paper mm-hmm. that can be accessed and downloaded for free. And there are quite a few websites that enable you to slip into that 
discussion and, and uh, consider what kind of changes one might make. It's, it's very empowering. I, I think it, it, it can be really depressing to consider the impact we've had on the world and how many resources we've unsustainably yeah. removed. And it, it can spiral one into despair, but I, I actually find the whole discussion around adaptation and resilience and um, it's it's quite empowering the more the more you read up mm. uh, and and I mean when you think about Alice Springs for example when I was living there I can't remember where I read it but uh, this statement really stayed with me around um, every city is three days away from hunger mm. you know you remove that supply chain and it only takes three days before people uh, start getting hungry Um, and and it wasn't we did I did put that to my um my expert in the field and he said oh no no that's just a myth but um it's actually we've actually got a lot more food here we've actually got two more week two weeks of food but I mean you lived here and I lived here when um the Stuart Highway was blocked off and yeah I can tell you within three days those supermarkets shelves were looking pretty bare they were and it happened twice um in in quick succession and it is really confronting but after that occurred, I can remember doing a bit of research and learning that, you know, around 50 years ago, of, of course, the Alice Springs population was a lot smaller, but it was um, uh, relatively self-sufficient as well. So, um, you know, uh, there's, there's actually quite a lot of food um, that's, that's grown around Alice yeah, Springs. I mean, even, even now you've got Happy Farmer, um, you've got the uh, I don't know where he is, but the herb guy who supplies herbs and um, and lettuces, and then there's food for Alice, and there's a lot of sort of citrus, obviously. I mean, I don't think there's quite enough to sustain um, the population here of twenty thousand plus. Not not to mention the the surrounding communities, but yeah, we still do very much rely on on Adelaide and Darwin to to feed this community. Um, we're gonna have yes. to yeah, we're gonna have to leave it there tonight, Libby. Lots and lots to think about. I really like that idea of um, which which I mean you've sort of alluded to, but I was thinking about this when you're talking about de- deep adaptation. This idea of the of the individual that we all have responsibility here, and it is one of the things with coronavirus is is each one of us has to take some a level of responsibility. You can't just put it onto the group or the community. We each have to take responsibility for being safe and to keep our communities safer. Um, and and I think that's hopefully going to bring a whole new way of thinking about um, individual responsibility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, thank you so much, Libby, for joining me tonight. It's been fantastic and lots to think about. So um, we're going to go out tonight with Guatanamera. This one's by Pete Seeger. Um, Thank you very much for listening in. Uh, Just remember you can get this as a podcast quite soon. Thank you, Libby. Stay safe. Thanks, um, Rita. You too. And I just want to say it's fantastic being able to, you know, this is one of the other opportunities with coronavirus is that um, I'm starting to find ways of having guests on my show that don't live in Alice Springs. So it's really widening the field um, and find a way technically to do this because this is, of course, a pre-record. And it's just great, Libby. I've been wanting you to come on my show for ages and it just took coronavirus to find that opportunity there. So thank you so much and um, good night. Good night, Peter. <laughs> You've been listening to Kitchen Radio on 8 C 
102.1 FM in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek.